Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Dr Lauren Dempster. I'm a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Natalia Mastorovic-Chulio. I'm going to ask Natalia to introduce herself in a little minute. Um, for our listeners, this is the next in a special series of LawPod that we are recording at the European Society of Criminology uh, conference in Malaga. So the point of this series is to bring uh, a snapshot of, of some of the key research that's going on in criminology right now that's being presented at this conference. So Natalia, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Could you uh, introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. So my name is Natalia Sarovic-Chulio um, and I am a lecturer at the University of Sydney. I started doing my research into mass grave exhumations in Spain because I found my grandfather's journal just after he had died and he talked about fighting in the Civil War um, and how that was very difficult for him at that young age that he'd been. I think he'd been like about 13 or 14. And in the process of doing um, the exhumations in Spain, I actually came to discover that my grandmother on my Yugoslav um, side of the family actually has relatives in a mass grave. And many of my family members were killed um, during the Second World War. So it's become a really personal journey for me. And it's something that I, um, I feel some sort of, I feel, sorry, I'm stumbling now. <laughs> I feel a massive connection um, with the people that I work with, the survivors of the Francoist um, repression and yeah it's become a really personal um, passion project for me. Thank you time. Natalia, I'm really sorry for your family's loss and thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, so I guess then to get into to your research, um, could you set the scene briefly for us? So you've mentioned um, you're, you're looking at mass graves in Spain, so it's hard to do in a short amount of time, but if you could <laughs> yeah. give us some sense of the disappearances that happened in Spain and also uh, transitional justice in Spain and sort of where disappearances fit into that. Sure, so when we talk about um, the enforced disappearance that occurred in Spain, we're talking about two distinct periods. The first is the Spanish Civil War, which was from 1936 to 1939. And you have the hot terror that starts in the first six months of the war. And that's where the biggest number of victims from the Spanish Civil War disappear. And we don't actually have any real true figures. There are estimations of up to 700,000 people died between 1936 and 75. Uh, but there are no clear figures because particularly in that first six months of the war, it is very un it's unknown who, how many people disappeared, how many people um, were killed, and what happened to a lot of these people. Um, and then you start to see as the war goes on, it, it flows onto a cold terror, um, as Ferrandiz has talked about. And that's basically just where the state institutions like the courts, um, both the civil and the military courts, actually start to prosecute and start to charge people with crimes. Um, so one of the key pieces of legislation in Spain that allowed for the deaths and the mass repression of people was the law of political responsibility and this was a law that was applied retrospectively which as we all know um, law should not do that <laughs> you should be able to know that you're breaking a law but the law basically said that you know anyone who had been on the other side or had not fought or supported Franco 
could be prosecuted for their political responsibility. And so we see mass um, purges of teachers, um, you know, the politicians that had worked in the Second Republic and anyone associated with that Second Republic or any of the so socialist parties and communist parties in Spain. What's interesting about transitional justice is you then have a period um, in 1975 when Franco dies and there is no purges of the legal institutions and nothing really changes. The king becomes um, basically the head of state and he says he believes in democracy and he establishes a transitional period where Spain becomes a democratic country, they hold their first democratic elections and they pass an amnesty law which basically says that you know any crimes that were committed cannot be, you cannot be charged with it. So it gives people impunity and people feel quite comfortable in that people start to become, become comfortable with the democracy in Spain, but then in 1981 there's a military coup um, by Antonio Tejero and he goes into the, um, the chamber of parliament and says everyone be silent and holds his gun up and shoots into the air. And suddenly all those people who had experienced mass repression under Franco, um, all those victims, start to feel again this fear of what's going to come. Um, now what's really important about this particular period between 1975 and 1981 is there's actually the first exhumations taking place across Spain where family members who know where their relatives are go to those locations, dig them up themselves without any forensic assistance and put them into um, you know, lo local cemeteries um, and they bury them together. And so what happens with 1981 is this stops and people don't feel comfortable, they don't feel safe uh, to keep doing this. And so we start to see sort of again the, this fear that has been well ingrained into people really starts to take hold. And then it's actually the grandchildren um, many years later who actually find out about this history and say, no, this isn't right. We, we believe in justice, we've grown up in a democratic Spain and we want to do something about this. And so you see this grassroots movement that started by particularly Emilio Silva, who was a Spanish journalist who decided to find his great-grandfather, no, his grandfather's burial um, in Pieranza del Bierzo. Um, and he was going to, originally he was going to write a book about, you know, his family and the Civil War. So he decides he's going to write this book about um, the Spanish Civil War and as he's doing that he's travelling around the country getting information from people, their experiences, what they remember from the period and he comes across a man who realises who he is and says, oh I know where your grandfather, I know someone that knows where your grandfather's buried. And so they take him to the site and then he decides he wants to exhume that grave and that becomes the first um, modern exhumation in Spain in 2000. Uh, at Prioranza del Bierzo with the help of forensic experts and 13 men are found in that mass grave and his grandfather is the first man who, to be identified from the Spanish Civil War through DNA forensic technology. So this sort of starts and sparks this explosion of memory in a sense where people start to get interested and when they find out that this guy's done it people start asking how do we do it and so this forms the Association for the Recovery of Historic Memory which I worked with um, between 2012 and 2018 and uh, they've been exhuming since 2000. Um, I think I can get you the figures but I think it's over 2000 or more graves that they've opened up um, and I was involved in opening up about probably 12 graves while I was there. Um, but many graves cannot be found or they have been destroyed, um, so it becomes quite complicated. 
Thank you so much, Natalia. That's really helpful to have have that sort of background that this all sits against. So I know that your research focuses on a particular case study and exhumation in Guadalajara in Spain. So, I mean, you've given us a, a bit of your background already, but could you t- tell us a little bit more about that specific site? Yeah. So that's a really important case, um, primarily because it's the first time that there has been an international judge that has ordered the exhumation on Spanish soil. So it was an Argentinian judge, um, Judge Cervini, and she ordered that uh, the Guadalajara Council allow for the exhumation of Timoteo Mendieta Alcala, um, who was the father of Ascension Mendieta Ibarra. And she was this sweet, lovely old lady. She passed away a little bit after the exhumation, um, but. I suppose the happy ending to that was she got her father and she got to be buried with him and that was her deepest wish. Um, So she had fought and fought for like more than four decades to open the grave. Her mother fought before her, her sisters fought with her, um, but the council consistently denied them access to the grave. Her daughter was a lawyer and so she found out about the Argentina trial that was taking place and she said, well, mum, let's give this a go. And so on her 88th birthday, she was flying to Argentina to talk to a judge for the first time and actually say, you know, this crime happened in my family, this happened to my father. Um, And when she goes before the judge, she says to the judge, all I want from you is a bone from my father. And the judge sort of turns to Anna Masuti, one of the lawyers on the Argentina case, and says, I don't know how we're going to do this. Like, this is not a simple request. We can't just make an order in another country for them to do, to exhume a grave. Um, Anyway, and so she says, look, I will try because she's so enamoured because this woman was just very sweet, very softly spoken. She never spoke with anger or hate or, you know, I don't want revenge. I just want my father. So I feel like in many cases she has been quite special and really important for the movement and she's validated and legitimated a lot of the claims around exhumations. and while she was alive, many people would see her on the, the Madrid metro and they would say to her, oh, can I touch you as if like, she's this lucky person um, because she was able to achieve this really big feat. Thank you, Natalia. I'll ask you a little bit more about the, the legal process um, in, a, in a second. But I guess in terms of the... I mean, you mentioned there that the, the family's um, attempts to access the grave were blocked by the council. Could you say a little bit more about the types of challenges that are facing families in in that area trying to access uh, the graves of their their relatives? Yeah, so there's a few things that can happen at the time when you're trying to do this. First of all, you need to know where they are, so you need access to information. So you might need access to a civil archive. If there's a military trial, you need access to a military archive. In the civil archive, it depends on who you come across. Um, With anything in Spain, it depends on the person you come across. They're either going to make your life really easy and be super sweet and muy majos, or they're going to be really horrible and they're going to try and impede everything. Um, And so what you can find is we've had cases where we've actually had an order from a judge to say we can access a document, and then the person at the council says, oh, well, no, that judge is gone, now you need a new one. And we've come all the way like two hours to access this document, you know, or you can access the military archive and they're usually pretty good. They'll give you access. You get, they will print it out for you. You have to pay um, by the page. But what can happen is if the trial is too long, they will say that they can only print 20 pages. So if the trial is more than 220 pages long, they will not, they will only give you 20 pages. But if it's 219, they'll print the 219. It's, it's a bureaucratic rule. Um, And then the other problem that you also have with the military archive is some of the um, documents are starting to be, they're 
the paper is starting to sort of eat itself away and it's just not in a good condition. And you say to them, well, isn't it important that we actually make a copy of this now and digitise it so that at least you have this forever? And they say, no, no, that has to go back in the box. So it's, it's little things like this that can actually make it really difficult. The Law of Historic Memory says that you can get access to a site where the, there is a mass grave so that the family can recover their relatives. But it's not that simple. So it depends on who's the property owner. It could be the state, it could be the local government, it could be a private property owner. It could be, we've had a grave in Cacabelos in someone's house. It was under a rose bush and they said, well, no, we don't want you to do that because we love this rose bush. It was my mother's rose bush, you know? So there's a lot of um, different reasons why you might not have access. And in the case of Guadalajara, the council, it was a local a civil cemetery and that was their cemetery, they had control. Um, they ended up giving us access after the, the whole court process and the orders, um, which was quite a lengthy one. Uh, but they did stipulate that we had to pay a deposit of 2,000 euros in case we made a mess or did any sort of destruction there. Um, and then we had to pay for access into the cemetery with our van so we could drop off all our tools and then also to take our tools back. Um, and then they charged us per body that we exhumed. Um, and then they demanded initially that we return the bodies so that they could charge us per body to put them back into the mass grave. Um, but we could not support putting these people back into the mass grave. Um, and since then there have been up to seven mass graves, I think, exhumed there at Guadalajara and they've returned over 50 um, victims to family members. So it's been quite a big project that's been going on since 2016 um, when we went there. And while we were there, I think it was about 108 people demanded or wrote a demand for us to act on their behalf to return their relatives. Thanks, Natalia. It's really interesting to hear about, yes, you say like the sort of the bureaucratic and not minutiae, but those just like daily impediments. And I guess for a number of the family members, like they're quite elderly, I assume, when they're... Yeah, they're, so. a lot of them, are, the ones that we try to do first are obviously the ones that are older um, because they have less time. Um, there are some sort of younger grandchildren that still, you know, they want to um, meet sort of their familial requirements of giving dignified burial to um, their relatives. So you do get some younger people. Um, but yeah, there's, a, a, there's, I mean, unfortunately, that generation with the memory, they're starting to die out. Um, and so it's a really imperative right now that as many exhumations get done as possible. Um, and that's difficult because a lot of it is done through private funding. Um, the state has just announced that they're going to be funding exhumations, but it's really unclear about how that's going to operate and how that's all going to be done. I mean, the Pesoy government has changed some laws and is working on changing the law of historical memory, and there are some good changes in there, but time will tell whether they all get through. Thanks, Natalia. I guess then to move from sort of Spanish bureaucracy side then back to Argentina, um, obviously you, you've introduced um, the, the link to the judge there. Can you just say a bit more about how that actually worked? Yeah, sure. So originally what happened was um, in Spain we had a judge called Judge Garzón and he was very famous for applying universal jurisdiction in Europe since 1985. Um, he was involved in a lot of high profile cases such as the naval officer Shalingo from Argentina, um, so he murdered people during the dictatorship there. Um, he also charged Pinochet in the UK, um, but Pinochet got away um, in the end, but he, he did actually um, create a precedent around universal jurisdiction and the importance of courts applying that. And so what happens is the, there's this sort of international connection between lawyers and judges in Spain and Argentina. 
um, particularly Carlos Slepoy, the late Carlos Slepoy, um, and Anna Masucci, who was a, she escaped the Argentine um, dictatorship and moved to Spain, and she's based in Spain, but works on a lot of cases. And there's this sort of collaboration of international actors across the, the countries. And when Judge Garzón tries to try Franco for the crimes, uh, for crimes against humanity in Spain, for a number of things, for the, the stolen babies, for the tortures, um, you know, for the mass graves. And basically what happens is he gets held um, on a charge of provocation, basically that he's exceeded his judicial authority and the case sort of falls apart and it unwinds. And so they basically seek to apply this same case, but in Argentina. And in 2010, Judge Cervini um, says that she's competent and she opens a case um, basically looking into all those crimes. And one of the crimes that she's looking into is the cases of enforced disappearance. And so she's been part of the demands to exhume. She's made demands in Guadalajara, I think in the Balearic Islands and various other places. I think also in Barcelona, um, which ironically has not had many exhumations in Barcelona. But um, yeah, so what happens is she, in Guadalajara specifically, she gave an order, I think it was in 2014, and the judge turned back and came back and said, look, we've done an investigation of the site. Yes, there's a registry of the people who are buried and where they're buried, um, but we're not really sure that they'll be buried there. We're not really sure it's going to be safe to exhume. And basically, I don't allow the exhumation. And so the association that I was working with, um, Armeache, they basically put in a, a report that says, well, this, we do this type of work all the time. We, you know, we have these specialists that we will have on hand. We'll have engineers to ensure that, because the graves were very close together, that the walls will be secure so the workers are okay. Um, and they basically say, this is how we find out. We, we need to cut the earth a little bit and we need to see, is there remains there? If there's remains there, then we go. If we start to see that the second remains is a female, according to the list, it's a male than a female, then we know we're in the right grave and we know that Timoteo was going to be there more than likely. And so she gives another order and the second judge, ironically, I thought this was really funny, turns around and says, well, we never said you couldn't exhume, we just thought it was going to be difficult. So you can exhume, but everyone needs to have ID, um, you need to all be, um, you know, have all the equipment and have all the experts that you need on site um, and you need to take responsibility. And so it gets approved and we go out um, on, I think it was the 4th or 5th of January and we exhumed for about 15 days or something like that. Um, and yeah, so we recovered 22 bodies that, that in that exhumation. We returned to the lab with the remains. Um, slowly we were getting them identified. So Armiace had a negotiation with the Argentinian forensic team and they do all the, the DNA identification for us for free because um, it can be up to 600 to 700 euros per sample. So that's a really big expense. And if we can save that, then we can put that into exhumations. And so we have to be very pragmatic about these things. Unfortunately, none of the remains were being identified as Timoteo. And as it turns out, he wasn't in grave number two, he was in grave number one. So in 2017, they exhumed grave number one and he was identified and they did a reburial um, in Madrid in the local cemetery there. Um, and it was, a, I was back at home in Australia, but I got to watch it because the family shared with me the video of the um, ceremony. It was just a wonderful ceremony to watch. There's so many people just there wanting to share in that moment with Asencion. 
um, and she's become almost iconic. There's um, images of her in Madrid on walls, like sort of paintings. Um, one of my favourites says, struggle is life and life is struggle. Um, and that's what she sort of signifies. Thanks, Natalia. It's really interesting to hear as well that the, the EAF was providing that support in terms of identification. So we'll put um, a link in the show notes to their website so our listeners can, can read more about the work of that organisation. I have one final question, um, and then we'll bring this to a close. I could talk to you all day. Um, I guess, what are the implications in terms of this legal interna internationalisation? Do you think that will have an impact elsewhere in Spain or could that be used by other families in Spain? Yes, yeah, so I think it's already starting to have an impact. It's it started to open up the discussion and in Spain, they're a very legalistic country, ironically. Everything needs to be done properly and by the book and by the law. Um, and so having a case was actually really important because it actually legitimated the work that we were doing. And what happened was, while we were at that particular exhumation, there was a man that we met and he said, oh, you know, my, my relative's in this grave over here, but I'm just, I'm not interested. I, I don't see the point. By the end of the exhumation, he wanted to recover his relative because he saw that, you know, we, we didn't make a big spectacle. We didn't, you know, hold any flags or, you know, make it a political statement. We care for the remains and people see that, you know, actually it's a really nice and beautiful sort of um, experience to have. And often what we find is that the relatives who we've exhumed graves for actually come and join in future graves. Um, so I've worked with a number of people who, you know, their relatives have been exhumed and then they've come to work with the association. Um, so I think that it does open up the conversation and I think that when people see that, you know, it's not this big catastrophe, that no one's blaming anybody, that nobody's, you know, coming to the town and saying this town is responsible for this. They see that actually it's not, it's just about recovering family members for their relatives and it's about them having access to that and another thing that we sort of do at the end of an exhumation once they're identified is we do a return of remains to the family in the town that they're from um, and it's a big ceremony and we ask the whole town and we walk through the town to the local cemetery and it's this sort of handover moment and it's really quite beautiful and really special to um, watch and I think people also see that and they see you know like it's it's just a celebration of this relative we're, we're reinserting them back um, into the fabric. Thank you Natalia it's a fascinating story and it's really moving to hear about you know the solidarity between families and and helping in, in other um, exhumations so yeah thank you so much for your time.